Hello and welcome to Weeb Spawn, where we talk about anything and everything related to anime and gaming. We are by no means experts, just huge fans. I'm your host, Bobby, and with me is Joshua. Hey, Bobby, I'm glad to be here and really excited to start this podcast. Me too. And today we'll be talking about a special topic. We recorded this a little later, so it may not be coming out right when Avatar came out on Netflix, but... We are going to be talking about Avatar The Last Airbender. And if you haven't been living under a rock these whatever years it's been since it's been out, spoilers ahead. So I think this episode is actually very appropriate seeing that it was just brought back to the U.S. Netflix. So I guess let's go talk a little bit more about Avatar and um, how it began. So as we all know... Avatar is kind of a show that just it held up against the test of time. It came out over 15 years ago, and it's still being talked about today, which honestly is remarkable, and it's still part of internet culture. It was created by Michael Dante DiMartino and Brian Konitzko, um, and the first episode aired on February 1st, or, sorry, February 21st, 2005, and it's loved by millions, and it's just a perfect topic to start this podcast off on. Um, this show was actually conceived back in 2001, which uh, it took four years for the show to get pitched, and it, they pitched it to multiple different TV networks, and they actually almost gave up on the show because all the networks were rejecting them, and they decided to do just one more pitch to Nickelodeon, and after that, a legend was born, and it all started from a sketch that Brian made of a just a guy herding bison in the sky, and when he showed it to uh, Michael, he was happened to be watching a documentary about uh, some people in the South Pole, researchers, and they were trapped at the South Pole, and his first thought was, what if we get this air guy and these water people and they were being oppressed by some sort of fire people. And from there, they managed to make the whole show based on these elements and this legend we know today. So, yeah, this, this show also covers so many great topics that it's won awards for. They've covered sexism and misogyny, abuse, mistreatment of people and refugees, immigrants. And they even have characters with disabilities that are shown as these these strong role models and um they have physical and emotional abuse by parents to children classism and even animal abuse in some episodes shout out to um Appa, Appa's lost days i believe it's called um which was a very emotional show, episode for us all and it's a show that even old and young audience still love today and i think that's pretty amazing so if you haven't been living under a rock you should know avatar and pretty much the opening theme honestly discussed the whole entire thing the four elements earth water air fire they were living together in harmony until the fire nation attacked and only the, they say the only the avatar the master of the four elements could stop them but he vanished and the story continues on when 100 years pass and Katara, Sokka, the basically going to be the next main characters, discover Aang, who's been trapped in this iceberg, ice, whatever you want to call it, for over 100 years. They discovered him and now he's back and he's his job is to save the world. A little, how old is he? What, like 13? Uh, 12. Technically 12. 112. Oh yeah, 112 technically. 112 years old and his first job to do after waking up is to save the world. Isn't that just <laughs> fantastic? Wouldn't you wouldn't you love that to happen when you just wake up from a 100-year sleep and they're just like, "Yeah, um so we're being oppressed by the Fire Nation and we need you to stop them." <laughs> Take out the Fire Lord, please. I know you're just a 12-year-old, but... Um, so, it isn't really a secret that the show is based heavily off of uh, 
Asian culture and um, lore, like the, the four elements, was a, a Chinese um, concept of what the earth was made out of, the all four elements, earth, fire, water, and wind. And the, the whole show draws a lot of inspiration from Chinese art, religion, and history. And some of the religions are like Taoism, Buddhism, and Hinduism. And the Earth Kingdom, like most heavily, influences China. Like Ba Sing Se was inspired by the Great Wall of China, being the whole city surrounded by this giant ass wall. And it's pretty obvious if you look at um, the city and you just see this huge wall and the king's residence uh, in the upper ring of the city is actually inspired by the Forbidden City. Um, which housed the Emperor of China, and looking at pictures side by side, it's like a spitting image, which I thought was kind of cool. I never really noticed, well, I never knew that until I looked at the picture side by side. And um, the Fire Nation is was originally designed off of Japanese culture, but they scrapped that and they started redesigning it to be more general um, from a bunch of different Asian cultures because they didn't want to... Um, have broad brushstrokes across it because they are the main villain of the show and they don't want to make any offensive statements. Yeah, because um, who wouldn't want that? Make a show <laughs> offensive to a certain group of people. We would never do something like that. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I assume since they were the main villains, they're like, let's let's uh, make it more general so we're not looking like we're targeting people. Then they have the Water Tribe. It's based on Inuit uh, and Cyreniki cultures. I don't know if I said that right. The Cyreniki is um, a village in like the topmost east part of Russia, like as far east as you can go. It's probably farther than that. It's super remote, kind of crazy. And um, the Inuit is the indigenous people residing in the Arctic region. And um, you can definitely tell looking at the northern and southern water tribes that their influence is very different than the other kingdoms. I mean, obviously, because they're in snow, they have to be a little a little more bundled up. It's a little chilly there. But, just uh, a little bit, you know. <laughs> just maybe like 5 or 10 degrees, a little yeah, colder I mean, than, you know, the average mainland. Yeah, just crank up the heat a little bit, you'll be fine. And the Air Nomads are based off of Tibetan culture and Shaolin monks and heavily on Buddhism. Uh, their clothing typically resembles um, Tibetan monks and Shaolin monks and sorry. I was say, didn't even Aang like uh swore never to like kill anyone even because there's one episode he was like talking about Kiyoshi or something and he first time I think he actually went to the spirit world and he's like yeah I'm even a vegetarian due to like the his teachings because he was literally taught from birth to like all life is sacred and he doesn't want to take even a single life, like even if it's a fly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's heavily based on like um, these monks and Buddhism and um, I think even Hinduism. Uh, a lot of um, vegetarians are – or a lot of Hindus are vegetarian and stuff. I, and that's where the air nomads are based off of. They have that philosophy of all life is sacred. So that's one thing that um, Aang's – culture taught him and that's why he even when his group the gang is eating meat he'll be eating like vegetarian meals which is pretty cool they kept that throughout the show very consistent and even the fighting styles of this show are heavily influenced based on these asian cultures like tai chi and um hungar and shaolin fighting shaolin martial arts and everything like that each element has their own different fighting style and i think that's very cool they even hired consultants that are familiar with these fighting styles so they would get it right every time and they were very consistent with it and i just think that's crazy that they, they put all these small details into the show and they kept it throughout the entire show and kept it true to itself just think that's remarkable and the small details help the show be what it is today oh for sure if they didn't have this much attention to detail, even to like little things like that, it probably would not have stood, like you said earlier, it would probably would not have stood 
the test of time just because even now now a lot of people there's going to be always some people that hate on something that's popular just because mm-hmm. it's popular but do you remember now i'm going to bring a different show into this but do you remember the spongebob episode about squidward hating crappy patties <laughs> mm-hmm. those who never or those who don't like crappy patties have never tried one <laughs> i feel that's, that yes fits avatar so well that the people who instantly hate on it are mostly because it's popular or have never watched it or have only watched like the first couple episodes which i will fully admit that if it wasn't for nostalgia reasons i probably would skip half of the first season even though it sets up a lot of the story but the first few episodes just because it is setting up the story. It is setting up the world. It is setting these characters that you will come to know and love. That for an adult to rewatch or watch for the first time, I can understand someone's not hesitation to say, "Oh my god, this is so great!" Like everyone's talking about it. Where once you get to the later half, obviously with the actual war going on and everything, there's more action. Everyone like it's easier for an adult or an older someone older than a child to get into so i will admit that that the beginning is a little slow but it's because it's starting to build something so much more amazing right and i completely agree like as an adult watching this show i think it's hard for people who have never watched it to get into it because like you said the first season is kind of building the characters and it is it it was aimed towards children so it was kind of figuring itself out and and they couldn't go into such heavy or deeper details in the first season because of that whole scene building and everything but once you get into those those later seasons they figure out where the direction of the show's going they're ex- they start experimenting with bending um which we will talk about later like they go deeper into water bending and go a little darker with it and they they touch on metal bending and it's just they they start figuring out where to go with it and they can go and make more adult themes in it and i think that's just it's definitely and there's definitely a lot of different character build-up and character development which is actually for one of the awards that avatar has gotten it was i believe it's called the peabody award Something basically something very prestigious to and to, for an animation show to get, and it was cited for its character development. And if anything, if you watch the show, almost everyone from season one to was there's only three seasons, correct? Oh uh, yes. That yeah, from season one to the end of season three. Honestly, I can't say there's one person that didn't change. There's a lot of like minor changes that happen to some characters. Some characters maybe didn't change as much as others have. I think everyone's probably one of everyone's most favorite characters is Zuko. And Zuko, in my mind, he's the main villain, but he's almost not just in that, I wouldn't say just the antagonist, but almost the main character along with Aang. Like, yeah, you have. Aang and um, company, like Katara, Sokka, Toph, Momo, Appa. Like, everyone knows that because they're the main character's friend. But in almost every episode, I think, I don't think Zuko is not in any episode. Like, even, even in Boston, say, like, when they're in their own, like, Avatar and Co. is doing their own thing, it always turns to Zuko and seeing like what he's doing and how Mm -hmm. he's been from the beginning where he's shunned from the fire nation. He was actually burned. His right eye was burned by his father and he was exiled from the fire nation until he brings back the avatar. And then he gets this like one track mind that he must get the avatar restores honor and he'll have the life which he wanted. All throughout like his childhood, he was being compared to his sister Azula, who was always better at firebending than him. 
she was like more ruthless, more cunning, more like just everything what Zuko wasn't, Azula was. And he was always being compared to her. And that just like broke him down. And almost like the only person he could confide to was his mother. And she ends up disappearing as he ends up getting banished from the Fire Nation. So he literally has no one except Rita introduced to Uncle Iroh, who's the only person in the entire Fire Nation that decides to stick with Zuko. I mean, he has his little underlings or whatever to help him like find the Avatar, but... Honestly, Uncle Iroh was the only person who, like, stuck with Zuko from day one to the end. He just had all these horrible things in his childhood, and even after his, like, mom disappeared and everything. And the only person you see, even in the flashbacks, that treats Zuko with respect and, like, loves him was Iroh. And even as a child, there was a flashback. I think it there was a picture or something, and Iroh is playing with Zuko as a baby where his father's nowhere to be found. And yeah, he Zuko, as you see his character development, he really has probably the biggest change because of all the stuff that he went through and then him discovering himself throughout the way. And I agree with what you said is he is as much of a main character as Aang is just because of he's in almost every single episode, if not every episode. Because they show his perspective and his journey. And I think that's just crazy that they have such huge development in him in just three seasons of the show. And it's just crazy. One thing, one fact I love that the show did was when Zuko officially like swapped over and like became a good guy. And he was trying to become part of Team Avatar. He actually lost his bending powers. Fire comes from a lot of, not even just fire, a lot of bending comes from emotional state. The air nomads are more about like balance, peace, serenity, clearing your mind, having basically a calm intuition. And that's how you, how you focus and become able to like air bend. Fire for Zuko he was, it was all about like his hatred, his um, desires, all his everything like that he wanted at the beginning, his honor, the fight back, all everything that was boiling up. And then when he finally swapped over and accepting himself for who he was, he lost his ability to bend, and then he had to find a new reason for him to bend and get his fire back. Mm -hmm. I, yeah. I just thought that was amazing that they added that that the whole that's like his tipping point for sure he he lost himself basically when he finally gave up the the path of hatred and finding his honor once he gave in that he he lost himself so he lost his bending ability and like you said he needed to find a new reason and the gang gave him that reason and it's really cool like small little details about that show that make it what it is. It's just crazy. And then one of the biggest fights that I'm sure if everyone, if you've seen the show, you probably watched at least like three or four times was a Zuko Azula fight. Mm, the last Agni Kai. Oh my God. That, that in itself, that episode. Oh my God. That was beautiful. But oh my gosh, the yes. fight, the swapping the sides, the whole the blue flame versus the red flame, the just the look on each one when during that entire fight, Zuko was calm, collected. Like he knew where who he was, where he stood, and then Azula was just firing, 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 firing. Just what was who was Avatar's first firebending master? What was his name? Do you remember? Oh, I don't remember his name. Yeah, he was the um he was part of the White Lotus, which we found out later. I don't remember his name. But basically I remember him saying uh he was talking at, about Admiral Zhao, about his first student who only wanted to learn how to shoot firebolt and not pay attention to his surrounding. That I feel came back to play with Azula. She her normal calm 
composure that she's had throughout the series. And that's why she was such a strong antagonist. All of a sudden got flipped. Where now Zuko has that calm composure. And Azula is getting desperate and just firing, firing, firing. Just everything at him. Just trying to brute force her way in. Yeah, because she she was always the, the level-headed character uh, when it came to Zuko and Azula. She She was strategic. She was smart and well-mannered, tempered, and throughout the, the the upbringing of their characters, there was this swap, and and it definitely shows in that last Agni Kai how the tables have turned and how she has lost everything and Zuko has gained everything, and I think that's just it's just such a cool end to their character arcs, and it's just a, a satisfying closure. It's almost like Azula got everything Zuko wanted at the beginning, but now she is so desperate and so like paranoid of how she got the power. That's what drove her to her ruin. And now Zuko finally accepts himself for who he was and he's finally found inner peace and he was able to finally become happy almost. Mm-hmm. One other notable thing I want to say is everyone talks about Zuko's character and don't get me wrong I for till this day I think he has the most dynamic change the most character arc the redemption arc like for by far no one can I don't think can compete with Zuko with his development <laughs> but one thing I do want to touch on a little was Katara where she originally was the only waterbender in her tribe she had to self-teach herself. And then even throughout all that, she basically had to become the mother of the group. And she almost, not necessarily, I won't say lose control of her emotions, but she wasn't in control of them per se. There were sometimes she would lash out or she wasn't always, she wasn't always in control, mm-hmm. is I guess what I want to say. And... Even when she finally got, they got to the North Pole and she was finally going to be taught by a waterbending master, they originally shot her down just because she's a woman. But even that didn't stop her. She ends up becoming a waterbender master. And if I'm not even, if I'm not mistaken, all the way into Legend of Korra, she is renowned as the best waterbender in the world. And she came. From literally nothing, she self-taught herself and she went through like all adversity against her and not only improved herself, but helped improve and become like this mother nature and even controlled her emotions so well that when she found out who killed her mother, she had the chance to easily kill him, but she didn't. She didn't, I don't think she technically ever forgave him. But she let him go to live the rest of his life knowing what he did. And I just think that's a little bit overlooked. That I feel doesn't get enough attention of how where she came from and where she ended. Yeah, I agree. She had a really great character development um, that is overlooked, like you said, um, because of all the character development going on. And Zuko is obviously the... Uh, most looked at because of how much change, but sh- uh, Katara had such subtle changes where she was hot-headed at some points, and she um, let her emotions get the best of her. But she was also like I don't fourteen or something, and she had to to control her emotions while being the mother figure of this group. And like you said, she went through all this adversity and sexism in the like the Northern Water Tribe, and she became the best waterbender like in the world. And um, even as you said in Korra, she was still known as like the best healer and the best bender and waterbender. And it definitely is an overlooked character arc, mainly just being overshadowed by some of the more obvious developments. And I think that's a definitely a good character to bring up for this. I think one of the reasons also Avatar is so memorable is based on like how realistic it is and. 
if you took out just the bending portion of Avatar and for war you would replace it with any kind of weapon or anything you want, it's just literally kids, teenagers, being brought into this war almost forcefully and they have to deal with all the problems of society. Like, you, for instance, the sexism with Katara and for the whole the North and South tribes, yeah, they're going to be different. Don't get me wrong. They're on opposite sides of the planet. Obviously, they're going to have different values. But just because she was a woman, she couldn't learn to waterbend even though she was a waterbender. Like, you're just denying someone the right to learn to learn under you a waterbending master just because of the gender right and and yeah and they they have that throughout the show which um i think they they did well on like with i mean Sokka, his is katara's sister and he even makes sexist comments to her in the very first episode and um later on in book one they go to kiyoshi island and they meet the kiyoshi warriors and uh, Sokka is sexist towards them just because they're women and they have an all-women fighting force. And immediately after that, they show him that just because they're women, they're not weak. And they show him how strong he is and they event- he eventually like swallows his pride and asks them to train under him, which of course they um, have their fun with him and make him dress in their all-women attire and... Um, it's traditional Kyoshi warrior yeah. uniform. I want to make that clear. It's not women clothing. Right. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, and they kind of like reinforce the idea of, like just because you're a woman doesn't mean you're not strong. And they prove that. They have like such strong women characters. And um, the Kyoshi warriors are awesome, by the way. Like they're just. They're non-benders, and they just beat the fuck out of people, which I think is great. And I just want to point out one one thing of how you – how you – basically how you elaborated on how Sokka turned into – had a more positive images of the Kyoshi Warriors. A more indirect way of saying it's basically he had his ass handed to him. <laughs> yes, he definitely got his ass laid out which was a fun episode shows um just how the show doesn't really discriminate on who you are it it doesn't matter who you are as a character they give you good stories and you're strong and powerful and they even have Toph who is blind and a child and she's one of the she arguably but I think she is the strongest earthbender like in the avatar universe and she's probably one of the coolest Ooh. characters. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, you that's, said, those are you fighting said words. some mighty bold words there, sir. <laughs> I mean, no, it's kind of hard I, to beat Toph. I mean, I will 100% agree with that. I think the only person who could come close to Toph is Boomy, King Boomy, which I will admit, I know there is in avatar comic book or manga whatever you whatever it is i'm pretty sure it's a comic book because technically avatar is not an anime it is a cartoon and anime is by definition a japanese animation show this was not created by japan it is created in the u.s so it is a cartoon and i know i said earlier we are an anime and video gaming (laughs) but avatar is too good not to talk about avatar is kind of an honorary anime Exactly. Going off of that, I know there's like a comic book or something that kind of delves way more into Avatar and company, basically after he defeats the Fire Lord and between that and Korra. Now, I haven't read a lot of it, but I did kind of catch something about Toph. And apparently, do you remember that episode where they get to the White Lotus and King Boomy is there? <laughs> so apparently... King Boomy and Toph fought it out there. Had a, like a little sparring match because they wanted to see who was better. And it got to be so bad that the people of the Lotus 
thought they were being attacked by the enemy and they had to all stop them from fighting and basically the match ended in a draw hmm. now saying that king boomy was also a very old man while toph is much younger and she ends up inventing a whole new bending style metal bending that we kind of touched on earlier so at the time yes i think king Boomy probably could have won that match if it was a little bit drawn out. I'm not going to lie. But overall, I will 100% say Toph is and still will be one the most powerful earthbender there I've ever seen in Avatar. Yeah. And not not to um take away from the their match in any or anything but king boomy does have a hundred years on toff so there's that too that's why i give him a little bit of the edge with like come through mm-hmm. with experience and even when we first meet him he has to he gives ang all these trials where you have to think differently now toff is more based on reacting like in when you first meet her even King Boomy gives advice to Aang. You need to find an earthbending style that waits and listens. And like you said earlier, because she's blind, she has, oh, what was it called? Seismic sense. I think that's what they call it. Mm-hmm. Seismic sense with her earthbending, and she can basically see with that. So she's very much of a wait until you go kind of style, but she also can be very forceful as well. And I think if the match continued... I think just with the experience at that time when they had before she learned metal bending, I think King Boomy could have would have been able to come up top, but just barely. Like it wouldn't be a landslide by any means. But I think Boomy with the experience would have come up with something that Toph hadn't known about. But then later on, once she learned a few more tricks, Toph would easily handle uh, King Boomy. Mm-hmm. Every time my roommate's dog is named Boomy, and every time I keep saying that, he keeps looking at me. It's kind of funny. <laughs> He's like, dude, seriously? Room right now. He's like, yeah. come on, man. But that's just one other thing to add on to Avatar is instead of making, and no, I take that back. Not just making Avatar, or Avatar, Toph blind and making her the most powerful airbender, or airbender. <laughs> She's an airbender, earthbender. The way they did the jokes on her oh my god, blindness. I've seen so many compilation, compli- whatever. So many videos, yes. So many videos of just Toph's blind jokes that I laugh every time. Oh, look, the, temp- the, the library's over there, is what you guys will say when you guys see the library. <laughs> and everybody's, like, hanging over Appa, like, looking for the library as she's pointing out to nowhere. I love that one. But one of my favorites is, I think it's when they're in the Fire Nation colonies, and she's, it's, uh, they were doing, she was, uh, well, what do you call it? Scamming people on the street with her earthbending. <laughs> and, like, early before that, Sokka goes, do you see this? And he holds a piece of paper, and she goes, well, from what it sounds like, it's a piece of paper. But I'm assuming you're referring to what's on the paper that, you know, <laughs> I can't see because I'm blind. And then later on, Katara shows a wanted poster and she goes, what's the meaning of this, Toph? And she goes, seriously, what is with you siblings and not understanding that I'm blind? <laughs> that wasn't word for word, but I just love that Sokka did it. And then it's like, <laughs> like brother, like sister. Katara does the same thing and just when they forget about her blindness they just play it off so well they don't show it as a disability they show it as a power and then they don't they're not scared to make fun of it but they do it in such a good way that everyone gets a laugh out of it I don't think I've ever met anyone who thought they were offended by the blind jokes because if anything it was mostly Toph doing it or just like if you were just friends with someone like Toph, you were around them so much, and how she can see so well with her seismic sense, it would be easily forgettable that she's actually blind. And mm-hmm. they just play that off so well, and I think they did a phenomenal job with that. I agree. And 
one of the other little jokes that I like um, was when Sokka drew a picture of Appa and it was fucking terrible. And <laughs> everyone's like, well, why are his feet on his head? And he's like, those are his horns. And uh, Toph goes, well, I think it looks just like him. He's like, thank you. Why do you have to do that, Toph? Yes. I almost forgot about that one. I love that one. We've we talked a little about it, about Katara, Zuko, Toph, because they're all very strong benders of each respected element. Don't get me wrong. I think Sokka, honestly, is a little underrated. Yeah, he was, I feel, mostly there for comedic purposes, and there's definitely a lot of funny moments with Sokka. As someone who's not a bender, who was never trained properly on how to fight, besides when he finally gets a swordsman teacher, and then he, but that was like way later, like in book, it's book three that he learns, yeah. right? Like the last season. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he doesn't learn proper swordsmanship until the last season, but his strong point, I think, was his strategic mind. I think people overlook. But a lot of the ideas Avatar and Co. had came from Sokka. And I think that's just overlooked. Because even when the Air Nomads, when they found a temple and it was occupied by other refugees and the Fire Nation came to attack, it was Sokka's idea along with the inventor, I forget his name. Uh, It was his idea to use the air balloons to help fight against the Fire Nation and the different kinds of bombs, the stink, the slime, the explosive ones. It was his idea. And then during that library episode, he was the one that decided to go back to find out when the Day of Black Sun was. He was the one that found out that the Firebenders lost their power during the eclipse. He found out when the next eclipse was. He's the one that had the main idea of how to infiltrate the Fire Nation. I just don't think people give him enough credit because he is more the comedic relief guy. He doesn't have a bending power, so he's easily overlooked. But I think he's very underrated. Yeah, I agree. Um, Yeah, because since he doesn't have a bending ability, he is considered like one of the weakest. But I don't think it's his strength that sets him apart. It's like you said, it's his mind. And they just use him as comic relief so often that he is just so easily overlooked and underappreciated. But every point you made is like on point because he came up with all those strategic plans and everything. He just at the time wasn't a very good leader and he wasn't really smart when it came to vocalizing his plans because they had that whole episode where they were doing the invasion plan and he went to talk about it but then he fumbled over his words and everything and his dad had to take over and he really struggled with being a non-bender he had such influence in their goals and where they got in the show that he didn't even see how important to the team he was he did have one power though boomerang (laughs) (laughs) yes Yes. Boomerang, okay, he had he's two a, powers. He's a boomerang bender. Yes, uh, I love that. But the other one, now I'm, I will admit I'm stealing this, but his bending power, what bending the bitch is, is how it was. Called. Oh, man. He had <laughs> Suki, he had, uh, oh my god, who? who's the moon girl? Yue. That's uh, rough, Yue. buddy. Yes. That's rough, He buddy. birthed so many memes to go with the internet, and he got, he's... <laughs> He got, what, two girls? And then, arguably, from oh, the show perspective... Ty Lee, he got her, too. Ty Lee and Toph. Oh, yeah, Toph. <laughs> possibly. Now, it could have been just for, like, a fleeting moment, and it could have been more for com- comedic relief, but there was a moment when she was drowning, and mm-hmm. she got all happy and oh, thanked Sokka. Oh, it's you, Sokka. Suki. yes. <laughs> yeah, and it's Zuko, I believe, and she's just like, oh. So if you think think of that, that's potentially four girls. Mm-hmm. That is more than any other Avatar character ever <laughs> got. Even Azula didn't even get one person. Zuko ended up being uh, marrying Mai, 
And obviously, Aang and Katara got together. So, arguably, no one else had as much game <laughs> as Sokka did. <laughs> Sokka had all the game. He was just taking it from everyone. He was hogging the limelight there. Oh, for sure. So, he, he did have his uh, little special power. But that's just another reason. Like, they, they make the characters so relatable that... No matter who you watch, Aang, Katara, Zuko, Toph, anyone, pick any character from it, and you you could find someone to relate to. And that that just amazes me. Mm-hmm. And it's it's almost hard to hate any of the main characters. Like it's even hard to hate Azula, even though she is <sighs> evil. I mean, she's respectable for the first two books. Or, okay, yeah, like, okay. As, as a villain, if we're talking about actual villain, I could see... I Okay, she had a clear goal, and she wouldn't... She basically wouldn't stop at anything to get to her goal. Hate would be a strong word, but I'll be honest with you, I don't think there was a point where I actually liked Azula, or I wanted her to win at all. Oh, no, no, I, I never rooted for her, but I didn't ever like, hate her. At least, like, for the Joker, or, uh, obviously everyone loves the Joker, like, he's such a well-written villain. Like, even Zuko, the reason why he was finding the Avatar was he wanted his honor back. He wanted, like, he had a very respectable reason for doing the bad things he was doing where for me azula was basically doing it just for the fire nation to take over the world and i guess maybe that's why is i just couldn't get behind her reasoning of why she was doing because a lot of people villains will do evil things because either something traumatic happened to them in their childhood or anything but if you look at azula's case she never had that she had everything Zuko wanted. She was given almost everything. Now, don't get me wrong. She put the effort in and became strong and everything. That's why as a villain, I can see her. She's a good villain. But I would... Even the Joker sometimes, he's a good villain. And sometimes you kind of like, you know what? I kind of want him to win. Like, just once. <laughs> I kind of want him to win. Azula, I'm like, nah, fuck that bitch. She deserves <laughs> what she got. I don't like I don't like her at all. But as a villain, as a villain in the series, she is a good villain. I just don't like her. That's fair. But to be fair in in her defense, she was tr- like raised to be a weapon. She was neglected um by her father cuz he just saw her as a means to get what he needed and her mother even hated her. Um, I think she called her a monster at one point. She never loved Azula like she did Zuko. So to be fair, she was like abused emotionally and neglected. So that kind of formed her to how she was today. And even her mother ne- re- rejecting her came to haunt her in the final season when right before the Agni Kai hallucination of her mother was there and it kind of pushed her to the brink of um psychotic and so okay fair Fair point fair point she did i i forgot about i'll admit i actually forgot about that even still i don't know maybe like i said it's just my perspective i think she's a good villain and maybe that played a role as like you said she was raised as like a weapon but for me during that she never learned from that so I just don't like her. Like mm-hmm. she's a good villain, and without it, without her, a lot of the story wouldn't have been as good. We need Azula. Don't get me wrong. Just personality-wise and everything, I just don't like her. Um, I can't. I can't like her. I just don't. I. I, I seriously, I don't like her. <laughs> <laughs> I do believe I haven't read like their their light novels and their comics. But I do believe she has some sort of redemption arc in one of them, because, uh, spoilers for anybody who wants to still read the comics, 
she and Zuko actually team up to find their mother because she wasn't ever killed. She was exiled and went back to her homeland. And she teams up with Zuko to help find her. I don't know if she had any redeemable qualities in that redemption arc or not. But See, now now I have to go look that up because maybe after reading that, I'll come to like her. But Probably not, but... <laughs> <laughs> but for me... I don't know. Like I said, she for me, she didn't have a good reason for being evil, but understand from your perspective or from what you said about how she was raised, it's almost kind of like it was ingrained into her, so she didn't know any better. So, yeah, I, I could feel a little sorry for her, and that's why I think she's a good villain and everything, but mm-hmm. I, um, I stand by what I said. I, <laughs> I'm just not a huge fan of her. Um, I do actually take back what I said about it's almost impossible to hate anybody in the show. I do absolutely hate Fire Lord Ozai. He is just a dick through and through. Um, he's made to be a dick. There's no redeemable qualities about him. He's just a monster. So. <laughs> now, flip that, we have Iroh, the father figure for Zuko, who his, what what was the meme? He's not my son, but he's my son. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know the quote, but yeah, he's yeah, he's basically uh, Zuko's father. After and he one was of the and one of the he's always there to provide wisdom, even for Avatar and company. He always he always gives out a helping hand, and then obviously, I think everyone was heartbroken and everyone died basically on the what what was the episode called the tales of bossing say the tales of bossing say yes when it was um i was gonna say it was actually dedicated to the original voice actor of iroh uh, mako iwamatsu he passed away i believe tales of bossing say was his last episode he was able to record so they dedicated that whole episode to him, and then Greg Baldwin took over as voice actor for Iroh for the rest of the season and even up and through Korra. And um, Greg Baldwin, I believe, sang the song. No, no, it, he it was didn't. it was Mako who sang the song. Yes, it was Mako who sang the song, and to this day, Greg Baldwin refuses. To sing the song for anyone due to his respect mm-hmm. to Mako. He said, that is Mako's song. I will never sing that. Right. And I just think that's another thing to love. Like, it's a side thing to know about Avatar that maybe not a lot of people know. Because I'll be honest with you, I didn't even tell the difference between the voice actors. Now I could be because I'm a kid. So they probably sounded mm-hmm. so similar that I just kind of overrode it. But I just think... Learning that fact that Greg Baldwin refuses to sing this song due to his immense respect for Mako is just another icing on the top of the cake for Avatar. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I, I I have the same thought. Like when I first watched it, I had no idea that the voice actor ever changed. Um, looking back at it now, when I did do a rewatch, I did notice the voice was slightly off and it. You could tell, but it wasn't so um, uh, separate that it threw you off too much. Some people say it did throw them off too much and they don't like it. But I think he did a great job voicing Iroh. And I think um, it's really great that he still respects him by... uh, Respects Mako by never singing the song to his fans. And I think that's just very honorable and nice. It's just another great thing. A little, like I said, the little icing on the cake for all you fans out there that may not have known any, like any of these, like little bits of extra stuff. Because a lot of this stuff I personally didn't know. I just did a little bit of research and I found found that out, and I just had to share that because I think that is an amazing fact and such respect for him for doing that. But. We are getting a little close to the hour mark. So before we get to our final thoughts, I do have one question that I'm sure everyone listening to wants to hear in your opinion. And I'll go next. 
what nation or bending power <laughs> do you believe is the strongest and why? Oh, man. All right. So I personally believe... Or actually, we'll discuss why in a second, <laughs> but rank them from least to most powerful of what bending powers do you think goes into that and then after i give mine we can discuss which ones okay so i'm just gonna i'm judging this based off of the the base layer of the bending not their subcategories like how uh firebending has lightning and lava or actually firebending doesn't have lava but like those subcategories like metal bending and and lava bending i'm not going to judge it on those i'm just doing straight uh, elements. Oh, I'm judging it based on that too. Oh, just the the straight elements. No, I'm basing it on some of the other qualities, oh. but I'll tell you why. Okay, I'm fine. I'll I'll do that as well. Um, so first, I think air is number one, which we're gonna get into wise later. Um, and then I think it goes earth, water, then fire. Fire being the weakest. Okay, we we're. Similar in strength, just I put air down lower. I think it's earth, water, air, fire, based on strongest to weakest. Um, so one big thing I know a lot of people are going to say, and it's about water benders and blood bending. Everyone's yeah. going to be like, blood bending, you can make them not move yeah. or like that. Well, one thing about bloodbenders, it is very rare for a waterbender to be able to bloodbend. It's not every waterbender can just bloodbend. When we learned about bloodbending, she even tells you it's only a rare breed of waterbenders that can learn how to do it. So not everyone right. has access to it. But if they did have access to it, it is very powerful. Were you going to say something? Oh, it cut out. I didn't know if you were still talking. Sorry. Uh, no, um, I paused because I thought you were going to say something about water bending. Oh, yes. So, and with blood bending being the thing, um, it is super rare, like you said. And besides for a few outliers, um, spoilers going into Korra, almost nobody can blood bend without a full moon from what we've learned about it. So you need a full moon to be able to blood bend. So that leaves you a very distinct time of the month and time of day that you're able to do it, which kind of makes it one of those outliers that makes it difficult to um, put in the ranking of strongest bending ability just because it's so rare. Um, True. And the reason why I also put it in second place is I, it has one of the most versatile ways it can be used you can use it offensively defensively it has healing properties you can change to ice to capture your enemies that you can take the you could take moisture out of the air you can take it from plants so the whole having to be next to water if you learn enough you can actually take the water out of everything that's surrounding you so you technically always have water on you so that's another reason why i place it second is because some of the other well fire and air you don't need something with you earth bending you do but there's more reasons why i think it's the strongest but that's why another reason why i put it second is the versatility of water bending mm -hmm. see the reason i put air in the beginning is because it's everywhere for one Although we never really see air at its full potential in um, Last Airbender, we we can see little hints of how strong it is. Like when Aang went to the Air Temple t after he got uh, out of the iceberg, and he sees his master Gyatso uh, sitting like his skeleton there, and he's surrounded by like a dozen or more Fire Nation members. And this one man was able to kill I uh, like two dozen amped up Fire Nation members because they're amped up on Sozin's Comet. So they're probably at the strongest point that they will ever be at. And he was able to wipe out – an airbending master was able to wipe out all these men. 
and I think it's the strongest just because you're able to leave voids of air and kill anybody within that void. Although, since it is a kid's show, they're really not going to do that, except in Korra. Um, spoilers. So, I think that's why air is the strongest, because if they were aggressive people instead of pacifists, they would be the strongest nation, because they could kill so easily. Um, See, one thing I would disagree on that is a lot of... unless it, ch- I haven't seen a lot of Korra, so a lot of that could change based on what's happened in Korra. Based on Avatar The Last Airbender, air, a lot of the bending is based on emotions. So even for Fire, when Zuko lost his because of his anger and he had to find new motivation to get his fire, a lot of what comes from airbending is from the nomadic tribe. And even when they learn, like a new Avatar has to learn airbending, they have to learn the peace, the balance. So even if they do have that power, most likely they would never use it. And just because they have access to that power, it's the same thing with like a lot of people. A lot of arguments can be made. Well, this person can do this. This bender can do this. Just the whole like blood bending thing. There's so much what ifs that can go on that it literally is almost they made it almost perfectly balanced that if you had a master of any one of these elements go against another master, it's honestly a toss-up of who could theoretically win. Yes, Airbender can block fire if you disperse it enough, but there have been plenty of times where Aang tried to disperse fire and it didn't work. So it's all about who's more powerful at that moment, at that time of when you're using the bending. I think... Earth was better because it, a lot of it has to do with how also versatile it is compared to the other elements. It has earth bending. It has metal bending. You can use the earth benders have been known to use crystals as armor. They even invented lava bending. There is so much versatility in earth bending, and not to mention, as long as you're not fighting in the open sea, you will always be surrounded by earth. And if someone uses fire, water, or air, a big enough chunk of rock or solid earth can stop any attack. Even though, like, you'd have to be shooting that at, like, mock speed, like, air pressure or water to cut through that rock. But if you're that much of a master of that bending anyways, you're probably going to kill whoever you (laughs) are. Unless you're fighting an equal master of earth bending or metal bending or whatever. See, um, I agree with your statements for Earth, and that's why I have it as my number two. Um, but to counter the point you made about air and spirituality and stuff, um, if you in Korra, we see there is one um, villain who, without giving away too much, is very – he's pretty dark, and he is a bad airbender, and he has killed – somebody by like taking the lung the air out of their lungs to kill him and which is pretty dark for a kid's show but um he but if i'm not mistaken for that don't you have to be in sight distance of that i mean to be fair for any bending ability you kind of have to be within sight to to not necessarily earth bending if you know seismic sense i mean yeah but not many of them do true um but he's a very evil earth or airbender and he shows what air can actually do and then on top of that um ang's son is fighting this guy and he's a airbending master and he is showing his skills of what an airbender can actually do and he has to fight like three benders an air earth and a waterbender and these people are known to be like people who can take down entire nations if they team up and he was fighting all three at once and he was able to actually get like hold his own against all three of these people the only reason he lost is because he was um he was ambushed by a firebender that he was like unaware of typical firebending tactic (laughs) yep so i think just the versatility of air and the things you could do with it if you had malicious intent makes it the strongest obviously like you said the people who wielded it um 
didn't have malicious intent. So that's why just by nature, it's not considered a strong bending ability. But the reasons you labeled Earth as your number one, I believe, that's why it's my number two. Um, I think fire... I just also want to admit why Earth is stronger too is I did see... Because Toph, honestly, is probably one of my favorite characters in Avatar. So I've watched some videos of it. Toph has kicked both Avatar Aang and Korra's ass in two <laughs> fights. Yes. Just Agreed. saying. Yeah. Just putting that out there. <laughs> um, And then Fire's just the worst, honestly, because... Like, the weakest, not the worst. Um, It's the weakest just because of how limited it is. That I will agree on. I won't. I put it as the weakest because of that reason. I won't say it is the weakest power in terms of raw firepower. I think it would rank second only to Earth once again. I think if you had enough, if you were strong enough, one, you can easily evaporate water, but it could go both ways. The water could go back at you and be steaming hot. And like we've seen before, the strong enough firepower can not like get affected by the wind mm -hmm. but also reverse as well but also if you think of fire if you control fire enough you can take wind away based on actual like properties of science and temperature you can bring air to you or disperse it based on how hot a flame is but like you said the versatility firebending has almost no defensive mm -hmm. tactics that is one thing that every other nation has is a lot of defensive tactics where firebending is more attack harder and faster and almost brute strength your way over. It is, yes, there are some tactics you can use, but it's mostly just brute strength. Agreed. And that's why I have it as my lower one. That's fair. I think that's just little facts that I, I knew some of them, but some people might not. Um, so the first fact, and I think it's the most common or well-known one, but um, Fire Lord Ozai is actually voice. The voice actor for him is actually Mark Hamill, who is most well-known for his role as Luke Skywalker. Which, when I first found that out, I was kind of surprised, and then I dove into Mark Hamill's voice acting career, and he's actually a very successful voice actor. He he was also a voice actor for the Joker, right? If I'm not mistaken. Yes, in the animated Batman series. Which just surprising because I think Mark Hamill is honestly not that good of an actor as a physical <gasps> actor. <laughs> Unpopular opinion. Oh damn! But his voice acting is on point. I mean, just look at him in um, Return of the Jedi. It's he's not a good actor. So there's that. Unpopular opinion. Um, so there's Commander Zhao who was in book one, I believe. He was a um, commander on one of the... He was all the way up there until book two. When, what did, when did they get to the Northern Water Trial? I think that was book one, because book one was water. Oh, right, and book two with Earth. Mm -hmm. um, so he was a commander on one of the Fire Nation ships. He was voiced by Jason Isaacs, uh, who played a villain in The Patriot. And when they were creating the show... Uh, the creators told their casting director, I want you to get somebody similar to Jason Isaacs because this is who this character is based off of. So naturally, the casting director is like, all right, and they bring them exactly Jason Isaacs when they're like, just bring someone similar to him. And so the casting director got Jason Isaacs. I got one better yeah. for you. I got you the most similar <laughs> person there is. I got him himself. Right. And um, for some people who don't know him from The Patriot, he's also um, Lucius Malfoy from Harry Potter. Quick side note, if you haven't seen The Patriot, I strongly recommend it. It is a very historically accurate timepiece that has a lot of violence. There was uh, George Takei was actually um, a voice actor. He was a, a cruel prison ward in the Imprisoned episode. George Takei is famous for Star Trek, being in Star Trek. Um, and someone else that I found was Clancy Brown. He was Longfang, uh, and I think it's, is it Longfang or Longfang? Longfang, Long. I truly don't. It's probably Longfang. I'm probably pronouncing it incorrectly. Um, and he was in Shaw, uh, Shawshank, 
but the thing that surprised me most is he's actually the voice actor for Mr. Krabs from SpongeBob. Uh, he also is the Baron from Jack 3, Hades from God of War 3, and I was just surprised by all his voice acting roles. And just digging into uh, their IMDb page, it just kind of shocks you how many big names this show had for being just a, a short that probably series. Went, that probably went over the head of many people. Right. Yeah, like I had no idea there was so many important like important actors in this show. I knew about Mark Hamill, but everyone else, I was just like, whoa, I didn't realize how many people they got for this show. So, yeah, that's about all right. I have. So, in order to wrap up this podcast, let's end with who was your favorite character in Avatar The Last Airbender? Not talking about Korra, just strictly Avatar The Last Airbender. That is a really good question. Um, if I just... Just looking at it, I think my favorite character might have to be Aang, just because I'm purely biased because I love Airbender so much. <laughs> Zuko's a close second, though. That's, those are definitely good choices. Um, those were probably in like definitely my top tier, but I had to say Toph Bayphone is definitely by far my favorite character. She's one of the few characters I've actually probably done the most research on because i just love her character in general from her blind jokes to everything about her to be honest but yeah so if you guys haven't seen avatar the last airbender it has been available on netflix since may 15th now we recorded this a couple days afterwards so it's been out for quite a while but i highly suggest you go and watch it it is definitely worth it absolutely and if you guys have any suggestions for our next podcast, please feel free to email us at weebspawn at gmail.com. Thank you guys so much for listening, and I'm Bobby. And I'm Joshua. Until next time when we weebspawn.